If, um, if you missed last week and uh, you've come this week, uh, 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 that's awkward for you. Uh, and if you were going to choose which one to come to, uh, you should have come last week. Okay? So uh, I can't say any further than that. I'm just being honest and open. You should have come last week. Uh, uh, and that's just another few seconds of putting off me talking about this because I don't want to talk about it much. I probably don't want to talk about it any more than uh, you want to listen to somebody talking uh, about it. But we're talking about it tonight because a fortnight ago Wednesday evening, it might have been, I don't know, God spoke to me very clearly, one sermon on heaven, one sermon on hell. So, so here we are. And that kind of excites me a little bit because when God's speaking, you know he wants to do something. And so what I'm looking for this morning, to be really honest, is what God wants to do. What does God want to do by uh, speaking to us about this in, in this way? So perhaps can we have that in our minds, you know, as we get to what does God want to do? And you can personalize that. What does God want to do in me this morning? What does God want to say to me uh, through this moment? Let me just have some of this and I can put it down. Um, the dilemma is this. The Bible talks about hell rather more than we wish it did. The Bible talks about hell, I think, rather more than the number of sermons you've ever heard that directly speak about the issue. Unless, of course, you were brought up in a church environment where hell and damnation was the order of the day. And there are some of you in our congregation for whom that was true. It wasn't that it was ignored, it was full on all of the time. And uh, this wasn't uh, the case um, in the church where I grew up, but we did sing a song, You've Got to Walk That Lonesome Valley. Who knows that one? You've got to walk there by yourself, and no one here can walk there for you. And a little four-year-old in church is going, oh my word, what's this that I've come to? So unless you're in that particular hell and damnation kind of stream, and a few of us are, uh, for most of us, we're probably in a stream that's largely ignored <clears throat> or just held somewhere at a distance the notion or the idea of uh, hell. Can't we leave it there, somehow tucked away, a little bit on the back burner, a little bit, a little bit sort of vague? Now, I suppose if the biblical references for hell were, were, were occasional and obscure, we could allow ourselves the freedom to tuck it out of sight and out of mind. The trouble is, the Old Testament points to the theology, the doctrine, our understanding of hell. Jesus talked about it an awful lot. Paul wrote about it, as did John, as did Luke, as did Hebrews, as did James, as did Peter, as did Jude, as does the book of Revelation, and have I covered all the writers of the New Testament? Probably. So they all wrote about it. So if we're serious about listening to the Bible, then we need to listen to what C.S. Lewis says. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. Now we could, of course, to decide together that we're only going to believe certain bits of the Bible whether we could ever agree on which bits to accept and which bits to reject is, is another story. 
But we could do that. We could decide to take the things that uh, particularly relate to us and warm our hearts and leave those things that we can't quite understand or don't uh, want to accept. Firstly, though, that would be hugely arrogant of us. And secondly, of course, that's fatally flawed. If, if I go to the Bible and say, I, I, I like that bit, so I'll keep it in. I don't like that bit, so I'll rip it out. I, I can't accept that, so I'll chuck it. But I can accept that, so I'm willing to leave it in. I end up with a faith that's been created in my own image. A faith that I've chosen, that I've created, that I've decided, been the judge of what's true and what isn't. And that's totally illogical, isn't it? For a fallen human being to make those kinds of decisions. So we're we're left with this, either it all goes, the Bible is nothing, or the Bible is everything. Now just wind back seven days when we talked about heaven. And uh, we had a ball, I hope, thinking about heaven. And as we thought about heaven and allowed the truth of it to touch our hearts and allowed our spirits to engage and our, uh, and our eyes to soar towards it, all of us would have said, oh, wow, this is just fantastic. And, you know, I believe it because it's in the Bible. And I believe it because Jesus teaches it. And I believe it because Paul writes about it in his letters. And so seven days later, we can't come and say, I don't believe in hell, even though it's in the Bible, and even though Jesus teaches it, and even though Paul writes about it. The crux of the dilemma is this, then. If we, if we want to take the comfort of heaven, then the Bible says there's only one companion, and that's you have to accept the challenge of hell. And that's why this has to be part of these two weeks. You see, Jesus believed in hell. He talked too often for us about it. And I guess in the end, if we're Jesus people, we believe in it also, if we're to be true Jesus people. Thirdly, it's of course the reason that Jesus died. Can we make any sense of our mission? Can we make any sense of the cross of Jesus' mission without recognizing that his death on the cross was rescuing us from something? If there was nothing to save us or rescue us from, what on earth was he doing dying on that cross? But if we believe, as the Bible teaches, that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, if we believe that he was dying for us, then it must be to save us from something. And surely not the sheer awfulness of his suffering that we thought about that that week before Good Friday, that Palm Sunday uh, uh, service, when we looked at the cross, the agony that he went through, all that broke and tore away at his heart. If that's what he was doing to rescue us from something, then it suggests that he was rescuing us from something quite awful. If there was no hell, then what's that all about? And the whole of the Christian faith unravels. Fourthly, could it be that it's loving and kind? Now, I understand this morning that pastorally, to talk about hell just straightforwardly and bluntly seems to be anything but sensitive and pastoral. 
And sure, for some people this morning that are facing particular issues in their lives, in that particular context, it might seem especially insensitive. But what of your doctor? What of your doctor that knew you had cancer and knew that it was very easily treatable, but couldn't quite bring himself to tell you the diagnosis for fear of how you might respond. I want to suggest that this morning might be the most loving and kindest thing I've ever done. Maybe that's why Jesus came back to it again and again and again. Maybe it's actually the heart of compassion that God opens up to us in the gospel of Jesus, that makes it absolutely necessary that we understand straightforwardly what Jesus was actually saving us from. So that's the spirit in which I just offer you these uh, verses from the Bible that I'll share with you. That's the spirit in which we just open up uh, uh, the conversation together this morning. So what actually does the Bible say? In our culture... Most people, if they believe anything, believe that they're going to heaven. They may not know what heaven's like. They may not exactly know who they're going to meet or what they're going to find when they get there. But the general assumption is that there's a better place where we are going. It's understandable that we would think like that. We, we were uh, uh, birthed and created for a perfect world. It's understandable that we should long for something that fulfills all that's lacking and missing in the life that we now know. And so in popular belief, everyone, almost everyone, goes to heaven unless they've been really terribly, awfully bad, and maybe then, maybe then, they might go to hell. Although to be fair... I haven't been to a funeral when at the end of it all, the outcome has been this person's probably gone to hell. Now, there might be all kinds of good pastoral reasons why that's the case. But even, or despite what's said from the front at those kinds of moments, people will fill in what's not said for themselves. And the outcome usually is that everyone goes to heaven. That's our general position. The problem with that is that the Bible makes the absolute opposite assumption, especially the words of Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. The Bible's very consistent. The default destination is hell and not heaven for everyone. That's the default destination. And the one thing that keeps all of us, you and me, every person here, every person in the world from going to heaven is the malignant cancer that the Bible talks about on every page using the word sin. Our rebellion against God has created a disease, an unholiness, an ungodliness within us, such that the Bible would say, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Sin keeps all of us 
every one of us out. We're all in the same boat. This is what sin does. It separates us from God. Your iniquities, another word of sins, has separated you from God and hidden his face from you. Your eyes are too pure, Habakkuk says of God, to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And then talking to the people, why then do you tolerate the treacherousness? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up uh, those more righteous than themselves? So because we are sinners, because in you and I there is this pollutant disease for which each of us must take our own responsibility, no one automatically goes to heaven. The default position is that sin keeps us out of God's presence. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Remember what we said, though, about heaven. When we talked about heaven last week, heaven is heaven, not because of where it is, but because of who is there. Heaven is heaven because God makes it there. Because God's presence is there. If God was not in heaven, heaven would not be heaven. In the same way uh, that people's presence in our lives can be the defining factor. You can go to a mediocre place and it can be like heaven on earth for you because of who is there. Equally, you can go to a place on earth that's absolutely perfect, paradise in every way, and yet be lonely and disgruntled because you're there alone. The defining thing about heaven is not what it is or where it is, but who is there. If we die with all of that sin in us, we are excluded from the place where God is because he cannot and will not tolerate sin. And so we find ourselves excluded from heaven by, by rights, by the normal unfolding of things. Hell is simply the word the Bible uses to describe being outside God's presence. Being outside God's presence. There are lots of different imagery in the Bible about uh, describing uh, what it might be like. But when you strip them all away, it comes down to this. Hell is the place that it is because it's outside of God's presence. In fact, in your older translations, you may remember the phrase that Jesus used of outer darkness. The NIV uh, translates it outside into the darkness. Outer darkness darkness. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's what the Bible says. Out of darkness is just outside of the light. And that's the underlying thread that runs through the Bible to help us understand what hell is like. God is light. This is outside of the light. I tried to get you to imagine heaven last week, but imagine a place where everything that makes heaven heaven, all those things, not least God's presence himself, is missing. 
So we said last week about heaven that it doesn't need the sun to shine because God's presence is the very light that lights up the whole place. So take that away for a moment. Take the goodness of God and the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and you begin to glimpse something of the struggle, the torment of hell. Take away God's light and joy and mercy and peace and grace and beauty. Imagine a place where those things have been sucked, drawn away then you begin to understand that God's not gleefully trying to create some place that's full of eternal uh, pleasures, with, uh, with uh, uh, introducing greater measures of torment. Hell is a place of its own making because it's a place outside the goodness of God. Why dark? Because God is light. Does God enjoy allowing people to enter into a place outside of his presence? No, it says he wept over Jerusalem and it says he weeps over us still. Remember the cross, that place of death outside the city where Christ took our sin upon himself. What happened? As the sin of the world was laid upon him, two things happened. Number one, the Father turned his face away. For the first time ever, Jesus was outside God's presence. That's hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sky went dark. And the sky went dark. Hell is what it is because it's excluded from God's presence. Hell is the place, not because God works hard at creating the most awful place, but simply it's a place where he is not. And for that reason alone, it's awful. It's awful. So the Bible uses a variety of images to language to express it. It talks of a, of a place of, of torment, as Margaret read to us. It talks of a place of uh, shame and contempt. Those verses in Daniel talks of a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of frustration. Because essentially it's a place shut out, closed off, from the presence of the Lord. Shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. That's the hell Jesus experienced. That's the hell that Jesus died to save us from. And Jesus was at great pains to point out to people that there's an urgency about this. The same Jesus that loved everyone, the same Jesus that welcomed the children to come, that healed the sick, even stepped in and raised the dead, is the same Jesus who warns with urgent language, do everything you can, take the most drastic action necessary to avert the journey that you are on. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell when the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. The radical measure. Because the Bible says that the unrighteous go to hell. That's what the Bible says. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. But who is righteous? Who is righteous? 
The Bible says that by their own efforts, no one is righteous. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, by trying to do what's right. The only people that can go to heaven by rights are those who are righteous. And yet the whole story of the gospel is that none of us are. Verse 22 of Romans chapter 3. This righteousness comes from God, the righteousness that we need to enter into heaven. The righteousness that we need in order that we can journey towards the throne of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. We're all in the same boat. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Yet, we are justified. We're put right with God freely by his grace, his love for us that we don't deserve through what he did, his redemption on the cross, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are unrighteous, but we can become righteous before God by putting our trust, our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the only thing you need to understand. And people can be in churches all their lives and never get this. This is more important than anything I've ever said from this place. And it's not the first time I've said it, but it is nevertheless the most important thing to ever be said. Righteousness, what you need to be right with God, what you need to be a member of his family, what you need to journey from now on into his presence, that righteousness comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. So whenever you think about, how do I get to God? How do I uh, get myself in a place where God's pleased with me? How do I make sure I'm going to heaven? What is God? This, All of those questions, they find all of their answers in this one phrase. If you're ever tempted to think that coming to church does something before God, or reading your Bible, or even praying prayers, or even doing something religious, or even loving your neighbour, or even whatever, 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 whatever. You can put 101 things in there, but the Bible says there's only one. Only one thing that puts you right with God, and that's faith in Jesus. Paul put it another way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The Jews, this was the way they split up the world in those days, the Jews and the Gentiles. We might say the English and the Welsh. For everyone who believes. We're all in the same boat. We all need Jesus. None of us are righteous. None of us have any claim on God whatsoever by ourselves. This is why your eternal destiny and mine is dependent on knowing Jesus or not. And Jesus puts it this way. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say, Lord, Lord, look at what I've done. Then I'll say plainly, I never knew you. 
Doesn't matter where you go in the Bible, everything gets screwed and nailed down to this. Your relationship with Jesus. This is eternal life, John, another gospel writer would say, that you may know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Wherever you go, it gets nailed down to this. It's about Jesus. That's all. That's everything that you need to understand. It's about Jesus. For God so loved the world, most famous verse in the Bible, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, or have eternal life. But notice what it says that isn't as often quoted, the verses that follow. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Default position, all in the same boat, we're all without any claim on God or heaven, everybody stands in the same boat. If we do not believe, whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It's only by believing, by trusting in Jesus that we can have the righteousness that we need. It's all about Jesus. Nothing else. I can't say it enough. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can forgive your sin. Only Jesus can give you the righteousness that you need. He's the only one who's lived a perfect life. He lived the life I should have lived. And he died the death I should have died. Only Jesus. All that matters is your relationship to Jesus in this regard. The Bible says it's appointed to every man to die once and face judgment. The first judgment is this. Are you in Christ or not? You might have a thousand buts. I've done this and I've been there and do you not know who I am? It doesn't matter. In Christ. That's all. That's it. The Bible says, though, that we can be certain of heaven because of that very fact. Because in Christ isn't, I'm in Christ and I've got to do a bit more. I'm in Christ, that's it. In Christ is heaven, the Holy Spirit in me, a deposit guaranteeing of all that is to come. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus, will be saved. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he or she dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. See it again and again. Belief, trust, faith in Jesus is the doorway, the gate, the ticket, the means, whatever metaphor you want. For the things of heaven, for the things of the kingdom. Therefore, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary, talking about the death of Jesus, behind the curtain. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Holy Spirit. You can be absolutely, and maybe this is it, you know, we're talking about what's God want to do today? God wants you to be absolutely certain about where you stand today. 
No more if, buts, or maybes. Some of you may be fed up of if, buts, and maybes. As we were praying before the service, and Andrew was praying, that at the end of this morning, everyone would just know these things of which we can be certain about. What does God think about hell? It was never his purpose. It was never his purpose. He'll say to those on his left, apart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for what? The devil and his angels. The outer darkness that would be the place where the devils would go. It was never his purpose. Billy Graham wrote, hell was not prepared for man. God never meant that man would ever go to hell. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But man rebelled against God and followed the devil. What does God think? He doesn't want anyone to go there. Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What does God think about hell? He took extreme measures to save us. Didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom, a rescue, a payment for many. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, if you ever get the idea, if you ever get the impression, if you're ever tempted to think that God is chilled about people going to hell, then faster than you can run, get up that hill to that bloodstained cross, get out of your life and get to that cross, out of the city, and look into the face of the dying man, whose arms are wide open as the darkness falls and he cries, Father, forgive. They've no idea what they're doing. I urge you this morning, I urge you, if you're in that place with a hard heart, how can God do that? I don't understand all the bits and pieces about how it all works. How can I, a mere mortal with a puny tiny brain and a weeny teeny heart, understand what's going on in these things of the universe? But if you ever think that somehow God's chilled, I urge you by the Spirit to look into the face of the cross. Invite the Holy Spirit to open your heart to show you what God himself was doing there. And I guarantee you'll be changed. And so we wait. We wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from death, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Uh, I didn't quite hear the last bit. I'm not sure, Bob. Just hang with me for a moment while we just think about the most important question we've ever got to ask ourselves. Am I in Christ today? Honest, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Let's pray.